NASCAR champion Brad Keselowski. It was a high stakes game of chicken and I had to send a message that I wasn't going to blink. On life. It's just a sharp pain where you feel like you let everybody down because you couldn't save it. On adversity. Mm, you know, I never thoroughly thought of it as betrayal, I guess. No, maybe I did, I don't know. It's more heartbroken. And on winning his sports ultimate prize. I love the journey. I live for the journey. We traveled to the Penske Racing offices just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina to sit down with Brad Keselowski for this episode of In-Depth. Uh, I want to touch on some kind of notable moments uh, from your career, the first of, one, the first of which being uh, your brother Brian uh, in the Daytona 500. Your mom actually uh, called you a hero for that and said it was the most amazing thing that she's ever seen. Uh, t tell about that. Yeah, it's for my mom. She's a little biased. Oh, come on. I mean, <laughs> a really cool moment, though. It's really cool. It's one of those moments that I just picture when I'm, you know, 50 or 60 years old and rocking in a chair somewhere. I just can picture that being on a, a tape that I watch and look back. and yeah, Explain what happened. Well... It was a qualifying race, <clears throat> which by the very nature, there's cars that are locked in and there's cars that are not. And my brother was attempting on his own uh, without the support of you know, any major entity to, uh, to make it in you know, one of the most prestigious races in all of America, the Daytona 500. Uh, being by the nature of not having a great car, he's obviously very slow um, and needed all the help he could get. Through good fortune or good faith, whatever you want to call it, uh, we were placed in the same races. When that happened, I thought, huh, well, that's interesting, you know. It'll be interesting how it plays out. And my number one goal was to just win that race. Sure. I wasn't thinking about helping my brother. Yeah. As the race unfolded, <clears throat> and uh, it sorted out to where um, I was in the back in the closing stages, right there with my brother. So it seemed pretty simple to me, find somebody and run. And uh, if I could help my brother out in the process, why not? So uh, at that time, the two-car tandem was all the rage at Daytona, and I just found him and started pushing. <laughs> and uh, next thing I knew, he made the Daytona 500. What was his reaction? I mean, the first time you guys uh, spoke after that? Well, I saw him right after the race, and obviously he just made the Daytona 500 with a car that should not make the <laughs> Daytona 500. And, um, you know, he was, he was very emotional. My brother's the more emotional of us two. And... Uh, what did he do? Ah, he was definitely crying. Yeah. You know, tears of joy, the best kind. But uh, that was really special to see. Yeah, I want to take you back to 2007. You're uh, racing in Atlanta and end up catching the eye of Dale Earnhardt Jr. Uh, Dale, b b before Dale ends up bringing you on to uh, Junior Motorsports, uh, how would you compare the success you'd had up to that point relative to where you thought you'd be at that point in your career? Well, I never had any preconceived notions on where I should be in my career. I wanted to be at the top, I still do. Uh, but I didn't have any preconceived notions that I should be here, 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 or here. Not that I can remember, at least. <laughs> uh, but either way, I still wanted to be on the top, and you know, I wasn't getting any younger. At that time, I think I was 23 years old, 24, right in that range. 23. And, um, you know, that particular weekend, was uh, a big weekend for me. It was a huge weekend because I caught the eye of Dale Jr. It was an even bigger weekend because I built a lot of self-confidence. I had a great race, and that self-confidence carried me through the next few months. And as I got new opportunities along the way, uh, I was in a position mentally to capitalize on them. How significant, though, was that Dale bringing you on to his team? Well, I don't know where I'd be without Dale. Really? Uh, and why do you say that? You like to think in life that 
if it's meant to be, it's meant to be, and the cream always rises to the top. That's not always the case in racing. So I don't know. Maybe I would have uh, stalled out right there and never gone any further. It's tough to say. Why do you think that's not always the case in racing? Well, racing by its very nature is extremely complicated. <laughs> extremely complicated. Uh, there's so many variables that go in. There's timing. I came in right at the end of the youth movement. So essentially what that means is uh, uh, the gates were flooded. And uh, those, at, those of talent at the end of the youth movement didn't necessarily get opportunities. Uh, because, I mean, all the, all the seats were taken, you know, the, the gates were flooded. And uh, they did, there's, there was a few like me who I think could have made it that just didn't ever get a shot. And there's still a few out there that are stuck in the lower levels that I think were almost identical to me. So I guess looking at those guys as example would be the, the best way to look at it. But to just explain the very nature of the sport, how it relies on sponsorship, how it relies on timing, uh, how it relies on a chain of events that can uh, build your confidence to a manner in which you reach a high level. Uh, all those things have to hit right. You know, I, I think about confidence a lot because um, it plays into the mental side of the sport so much. If you go out there and don't think you're going to win, you're not going to win. You know, that's just a very simple fact. Uh, and if you go through a sequence of events where you get in cars and equipment that's not of quality, it's only a matter of time before that beats down your self-confidence and where you start looking around saying, maybe it's me. It's only a matter of time. And then you start to approach the weekend in survival mode, not there to win the race. And when that happens, you have no chance. I believe it was uh, 2008 that Roger Penske first tried to uh, sign you to his team, but you essentially <laughs> declined at the time because you were, you know, driving for uh, Junior Motorsports, uh, and obviously uh, they have the relationship with uh, Hendrick, which is where you really thought and wanted to uh, ride that next season uh, for them in the Sprint Cup Series. How devastating was it for you at that time when Hen Rick Hendrick ends up re-signing Mark Martin? Well, I got to go back through the, the timeline um, because in 2008, uh, you know, I'd, I'd agreed to uh, to drive for Rick Hendrick, uh, and he had just signed on Mark Martin, and uh, you know, I was ready in the wings, so to speak, uh, and I was ready not just in essence of the sport. I was ready mentally for that opportunity. Obviously it didn't play out. In that timeline, Roger had called me, unbeknownst to him that, uh, you know, I had those opportunities. He just respected what I had done at that point. And he called me and, and wanted to know m what my situation was essentially. And, uh, you know, I knew I was wanting to do this, the Hendrick opportunity and, and go for that. Uh, but it's Roger Penske. How can I, how can I say no to at least a chance to meet him? So I met him, and I sat in that office, and, and he talked to me, and I just wanted to hear him talk. I never met the guy. I just wanted to hear him talk. Didn't know what he had to say. I know what he meant, or I know what he means to the sport. I know what he meant to Detroit. You know, he had just brought the Super Bowl to Detroit about a year and a half before that. It's a pretty big deal. So, uh, in Detroit, being where you're from, yep, his exactly. office is not far from where you guys lived. And, exactly. Right. So, uh, you know, I talked. We just talked. At the end, he, he asked me a very simple question: "Are you interested?" And I told him, "I'm a loyal guy. 
I've already made another commitment. But I have a feeling I'll be back. And, uh, and now, listening to that now, it sounds kind of cheesy, like I was the Terminator or some shit. But, uh... Well, it's probably because you're young at the time, yeah, right? Yeah, I was I mean, 23 years yeah. old. Or that, no, I just turned 24. And, and I still have braces. And, and here's this billion, billionaire, billionaire, very successful you know, <laughs> race owner. What were we saying about confidence? Yeah, right. If you don't believe in yourself, why should anyone else? So um, we have this meeting. I tell them I'll be back. And another eight months later, Mark Martin uh, wins Phoenix. This would have been uh, late February, early March 2009. And I knew what that meant. I knew when he won what it meant. No, really? As soon as he won that race, I knew that uh, I wasn't going to get the ride at Hendrick Motorsports in 2010. The one that, you know, essentially we'd talked about and I'd been promised. I knew what it meant. I didn't want to believe it. So uh, the next weekend, <clears throat> we go to Talladega, Alabama. And uh, I've got a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. But I'm trying to, uh, trying to put it in the background, so to speak. We run that race and uh, I win. You're not supposed to win in your fifth start. So I win this race. And uh, it's a big deal. You win your first cup race. It's a really big deal, especially in your fifth start. And, uh, you know, all the accolades that come with it, the mental highs and, you know, everything just being showered on you and you just don't know how to deal really with any of it. Uh, but you're just living the moment and just giddy, you know, mm -hmm. giddy. And uh, I got a call from Rick. I knew what the call was. I just didn't want to believe it. All I could think in my mind is, I just won this race. There's no way anyone else but me can drive that car next year. But like I said before, racing is much more complicated than that. As soon as Mark had won Phoenix, he walked up to Mr. Hendrick and told him he wanted to drive the car for the next year or two, which essentially meant there was no spot for me. Well, as a race car driver, I'm keenly aware of the fact that I'm a perishable item, like a piece of fruit. And uh, if I don't race, I sit on the dock and I rot. So I had to go race. And that meant I had to leave the fold. And it was really, really tough for me to, to understand because I felt like I felt like I played all the cards to perfection, almost like I was playing blackjack and, you know, I had 11 and I doubled down and I hit and I got a nine and the dealer had a six showing and, you know, you turn over and they have a face card and like, I got them. And their next card's a five, and, you know, and you just think to yourself, really, you know? Any, any sense of betrayal since you were essentially promised as you said, that ride? Mm, you know, I never thoroughly thought of it as betrayal, I guess. Well, maybe I did. I, I don't know. It's more heartbroken. Uh, more chippy. <laughs> maybe that's something that comes from a sense of betrayal, but that's a strong word. I would say it definitely added fuel to the fire of who I am and my desire to be the best. Uh, so I had, you know, all throughout my career, every step of the way, um, someone has always told me no, always. No, you can't do this. No, I'm not going to work with you. And uh, each step of the way, uh, I've been able to overcome that. It's funny, I was, you know, in the plane flying back from the banquet. And 
and we were talking. And I, this guy on Twitter that I used to know about 10 years ago sent me a message I thought was really funny. He worked for this sponsor uh, who had turned me down 10 years ago. And they went with this other driver and it flailed and mm -hmm. they didn't run very well and eventually they left the sport because that's what happens to sponsors that spend a lot of money and don't win. And this guy sent me a message and he'll congratulate me on this on Twitter because I'm not really in contact with him anymore. But he sent me this message saying, uh, congratulations, apparently we're like the Beatles or uh, we're like the guy who missed a chance to sign the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> and I just laughed. I didn't answer him back, I didn't have the heart. And I'm not saying I'm the Beatles by any means, but this is his words. And I, I was thinking, that jogged my memory. I didn't answer him back. I didn't have the heart. I didn't have the heart, no. And um, <laughs> I was thinking at that moment, after reading that, of all the situations, all the times in my life where I've been told no, uh, where I've been told, you know, I wasn't good enough, uh, where I was told that, uh, you know, there were other options that were better than me. Certainly that situation with Hendrick was one of them, but there were a lot of them along the way. And each one of them has uh, only made my commitment, my resolve stronger. The Roger Penske, obviously a legend in the industry, won like 15 Indianapolis 500. Is it 15? But I always forget the number. Hovis, is it 15? Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. So, so a lot. Okay, a lot. Uh, yeah, but, I just use more than 12. But, but the elusive <laughs> uh, championship, you know, never been among his accolades, and it was actually his uh, president uh, who, who said he could see Penske giving up all of his past successes for that one uh, <laughs> Sprint don't Cup that. Uh, championship. But what, what were your uh, emotions like in that final race when it became clear that uh, you were indeed going to win the 2012 championship? Well, there's partially as relief. Relief? Yeah. Because... Um, Talking a big game leading up to that, too. Yeah, well, partially as relief because the season was over, and it's a long-ass season. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so partially relief... Uh, beyond that, the question right away was, what's next? It was a question, not a, not necessarily an emotion. Uh, because winning a championship is, is a goal, and a goal is a destination. But I love the journey. I live for the journey. And so, in, in a way, it's bittersweet to actually win something because you know the journey's over. Uh, but the actual celebration with the guys is what makes it all come together and, and for me internally. You know, being able to see a, a group of men that have all worked towards a common goal, enjoy it, that's fun to me. My own success is, you know, it's rarely that enjoyable for me. I don't. I don't get into that kind of stuff too much, but I really enjoy seeing those around me be successful. I enjoy, you know, looking in their face and their body language and so forth. And don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed winning the Sprint Cup. <laughs> but all I can think about is the journey. That's what I think about. And uh, speaking of the journey, uh, you mentioned, you know, many of the obstacles you've had to overcome in achieving your goals. Your, your family ha had one of the uh, few remaining, uh, you know, family NASCAR operations in K Automotive before it ended mm -hmm. up uh, shutting down. And um, you know, in reading about you in preparation for the interview, you you were talking about how, you know, during the really tough times with K Automotive, you'd show up at the hotel and yeah, the yeah. credit card wouldn't work. Yeah, you the would, gas station. Uh, you would, uh, you know, spend time working in the family shop during the Michigan winters with the heat turned off to mm -hmm. uh, save money, uh, knowing at the end of the month you were going to be unable to pay the employees that worked for you. Mm -hmm. Of all of that, 
Um, what was what of those struggles stands out the most? Which struggle stands out the most? You know, uh, when the uh, the week came, which it had to eventually, where everything was sold off, or not everything, most of everything was sold off. Uh, I wasn't around. I had uh, I'd left for St. Louis and uh, lived there for a couple months. So I wasn't around. So when you say what moment sticks with you the most, it's a moment that I didn't really see, but I just pictured in my mind. Uh, it was a moment where uh, where they were moving out of the, the building that they were in. And, uh, you know, I could just, I just picture that moment vividly in my mind. I wasn't there, but I was in St. Louis. But that moment sticks in my mind because at that moment you're dismantling, you know, that in which you've worked for, which everyone has worked for in your family. It's being dismantled. Uh, much like seeing someone's pet project that they've worked on their whole life be taken apart. The moment to me kind of feels like uh, the Citizen Kane final scene where they throw the sled in the fire, you know? It feels like that to me. It's just a sharp pain where you feel like you let everybody down because you couldn't save it. It wasn't meant to be, and I've moved down since then, but. If there's a moment that sticks with me, it's that moment and just picturing everything being moved out the building and out the door and picturing the, the pictures being taken off the wall or, you know, things of that nature. And your family, obviously a long history in the sport, your grandfather, your dad, his brother, your mom, uh, you know, your siblings. I mean, a lot of people worked for uh, K Automotive outside of the employees that um, you guys had, but you seem to really take it to heart, at least at the time, based on uh, some of the quotes you've since given. I, I read, um, and you said this, um, which seems grossly inaccurate and unfair to uh, put that burden on yourself, but you said, um, quote, to think I was part of bankrupting my family to try to pursue your own dream is a moment where you feel so selfish and incredibly low as a human being mm -hmm. that you just don't even know how you're ever going to recover from that. Obviously, again, unfair and seemingly inaccurate to put that on yourself, but wh why did you feel like at the time that you shared in the blame for what went wrong? Mm, because I called for the ball. I, I accepted the responsibility. Uh, it was my job to find a way to be successful and I didn't find it. Uh, and that puts the burden on me. You know, that's, that was my missed shot, my fourth quarter game-winning shot, and missed it. You know, unfortunately, it was a half-court shot, <laughs> but I still had the ball. How long does it take to recover from something like that? Well, I don't think there's an answer to that. I think it takes till you have a moment where you've achieved success. It takes that moment where you eventually hit the fourth quarter shot. And that moment makes you feel like the one that you missed was nothing but a training exercise. What do you think you learned from having gone through that? Well, through adversity comes strength. You know, for me, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily what you learn. I think that's that's too that's too basic. It's it's more than what you learn. It's uh, it, it's about um, it's about how it shapes you. And you'd say that's part of learning, but it's really not. Uh, there's always a learning process. Every day I'm learning. Every day. Uh, 
but there's also a molding and a shaping process as well of who you are. Uh, whether it's in the eyes of yourselves or in the eyes of others. Uh, for me, through that process, to answer exactly what I learned uh, was really not that much. Uh, really? No. I, most everything you learn is based off of failure, not success. But in this particular instance, uh, the failure was not enough to really learn anything from. Uh, it was uh, it was an opportunity, without a doubt. And I might have learned a little bit from the actual experience of racing, but from the failure itself, I learned very little. How do you say it wasn't enough? I mean, the, the, your family, you know, lost their business, their ways to you know, make a living and mm -hmm. you talk about one of the toughest moments of your life being, you know, watching watching them have to sell their assets and leaving for the race on weekends sure. knowing that they're having to, you know, get, get rid of everything. So, I mean, so how wasn't it uh, enough to... That wasn't a learning experience. I mean, it'd be like watching your dog get ran over by a car, it's not necessarily a learning experience. Uh, it's a it's an experience where you you feel uh, you feel terrible, but I mean sometimes your dog just gets ran over a car and there's nothing you can do about it. The, the last question I have uh, doesn't it certainly molds you, right? Uh, and you start to you know, maybe look at the world a little differently, but uh, I don't think it necessarily teaches you anything. The last question I have on this, your, your mom said, uh, quote, he pulled us out of bankruptcy all by himself. He gave us every penny he had to pay our bills. Otherwise, we would have probably lost our home. What did it feel like for you to, you know, be in a position to be able to do that? Mm. It was temporary relief. But every time I, I felt like I got out of one hole, and, and the one with my family was certainly the hardest, it seemed like the next hole came up. You know, it was the next challenge of somebody saying I wasn't great enough, not good enough to, to be here to do this. Uh, and the easiest way I can explain is at that same time frame where I was you know, starting to be able to bail out my family financially, uh, I was also at the point where the, the things were falling apart from uh, you know, being able to continue my role at Hendrick Motorsports. Mm. Uh, so I just transitioned from one challenge to the next. So there, there was a feeling of temporary relief, but not really satisfaction, if that makes any sense. Did you ever wonder when you were gonna see kind of the light at the end <laughs> of the tunnel at that point? Sometimes, but you know, uh, part of me lives for that challenge, so. Uh, it's part of what drives me to be who I am. Uh, I want to speak a little bit about your mentality and when, when you're out on the, the racetrack. But first, I mean, how, how would you explain the mindset of just trying to continuously improve? Mm. Well, that's my MO. Uh, the mindset of trying to continuously improve, you know, that's the short way of saying it. I just want to be better tomorrow than what I am today. And for me, that mindset justifies, you know, my existence. If I'm not better tomorrow than what I was today, then what's the point? What's, what's all this effort for? What's all this work for? Not just by myself, but by all those around me. And it makes me feel like I don't deserve what I have or what I'm surrounded by. Uh, and that can be difficult at times because uh, those I'm around have a tendency to look around and go, when is it ever going to be enough? And the simple answer is never. I, I don't, I don't want to be enough. I don't want to just have enough. I want to keep pushing. I want to be better every day. And sometimes that's not entirely possible. Sometimes you see growth in, you know, not daily, but weekly or yearly, and that's okay. Uh, but without that goal, without that drive, who are we? 
What do you think about when you're on the track racing? Mm. I mean, my mind's in a million different places when I'm racing. I'm thinking, what, else, what has nobody else thought about is usually what I'm thinking. What has slipped by everyone else? What opportunities are there that haven't been exploited by someone else? And if I can find them, I can find weakness in everybody I'm around. You ever think about anything that's not racing? I mean, like what you had for dinner the night before, <laughs> or a girl you went on a date yeah. with? I mean, can your mind wonder while you're in the car, or does it always have to be focused on the task at hand? You know, I found sometimes that in order for me to really focus in the most important times, that if I let my mind wander just a little bit, it helps me do that. Huh. It helps me, if I step out of the room or the situation, with a thought process, not in the heat of battle, but with a thought process outside of it and then walk back in. Like what, what will you think about when you're out of it? You know, it could be something simple like a fan interaction I had before the race or I don't really think about food, <laughs> but uh, it could be something that simple. What, what do you see when you're driving 200 miles per hour? What do I see? Well, you know, when you're really driving a car, when you're really, really in tune with it, and I, I don't mean just a little, I mean fully in tune with it, uh, you feel like, in a sense, like you're dancing, and that you could dance with your eyes closed. When you're just really in it, because the rhythm, and the pace and how you're moving and how you're feeling the car move. That's when you're really, really in tune, when everything's just there, when you're in the zone. And so I always feel like at that point, I no longer see what's in front of me, not directly in front of me, but I'm seeing things, you know, 15, 30, maybe 45 seconds in front of me. I'm seeing things when I'm behind someone. This is when I'm really in the zone. I'm saying, he just did this, which means I know him pretty well. He's gonna do this next sequence of moves in the next two minutes. And when that happens, uh, it's, it's, it's a great feeling. You know, when, when you can read the mannerisms of those people that you're around, the, the body language of, that they have, not in their body, but in their movements and how they do things in their cars. And that's usually what I'm seeing when I'm really in. So, I mean, these are several hour races, generally. What happens when you have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> the simple bathroom question. <laughs> you know, I've never had an issue with that because when adrenaline starts flowing, those things all turn off. Really? Yeah. Now, when it's cold out and I have no adrenaline, oh, terrible. But you know what? When I get in the car and get racing, that doesn't happen. Wow. Is it like that for uh, all drivers, pretty much? Well, yeah, I've heard some stories about a few others, but uh, I can't well, speak What have you heard? Oh, I've heard of a couple of people losing control, some intentionally, some not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, you, you said to be an elite driver, you really have to be unafraid, basically. In 2012, you, you forced uh, Jimmy Johnson high into the rubble to the point where it seemed like both of you almost lose control. Um, explain the situation and the thinking at that point. Well, you know, afterwards, I think Jimmy summed it up pretty well. It was a high-stakes game of chicken. Uh, which at that point in the season, the championship was on the line. Uh, he knew it, I knew it, and I had to send a message that I wasn't going to blink. But take me to that moment when, I mean, you're kind of teetering on the edge of losing control. What, what, are, what are you thinking about? I'm thinking he better give me room or he's going with me. 
That's really? what I was thinking, yeah. And he did. He was smart enough to know that, which is really impressive. But um, either way, I had to send a message that I was serious. How do you view Jimmy Johnson? I think of him as, uh, you know, one of the most balanced race car drivers, probably the most balanced race car driver we've ever seen in the sport. He's not really, I'm trying to measure my words here. He's good in every category, every category. Mental strength, physical strength, talent, leadership qualities, all those things and, and, and on. You know, he's good at every category. He's the most balanced driver the sport has ever seen. Why did uh, his reaction to your August 2011 crash really mean a lot to you? Well, uh, for me, you know, I was sitting in the car and, uh, you know, I just wrecked really, really hard. And uh, at that point, I could feel my legs, but I knew that it didn't feel right. And I was in extreme pain in my lower back. I was just tingling like hell. You know, when, when I first started moving, I was really scared that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd lost some movement in my, you know, lower body. And, uh, you know, I looked over at, at that moment while I was in pain and there was a car parked next to me. And uh, it, it was Dale Earnhardt Jr. He had been testing at the same track and he was on track when I wrecked. And uh, my car was parked parallel to the racetrack was just where the resting position was. And, and Dale had pulled up like this. And you know, the edge of the track was right here, he'd pulled up. And uh, at that point, I didn't know how I was gonna get out of the car because I, I just had zero strength. You know, I was a wet noodle. And uh, my car was running at full sound. You know, when it wrecked, the engine had lodged itself in a position to where it was running at full speed. Uh, but the drivetrain wasn't engaged, so obviously it wasn't moving. And so I remember reaching over shutting the car off. And when I did, the switch was right over here. I saw him out of the corner of my eye. And I could see his, his helmet and his shield and he was looking at me like this. He was just staring. And he wasn't moving. He wasn't getting out. He just, his car was stopped, he was stopped. And it was just, you know, like you and I talking right here, just staring me down. And I was in a lot of pain, I couldn't move. Uh, and I remember, you know, yelling at him to come help me, he couldn't hear me. Uh, I remember yelling at him to come help me. And he just stayed there, stayed there and stayed there. And eventually, <clears throat> the, uh, you know, track safety crew came up and uh, started to help me. And I started to get the feeling back in my legs and Realized my ankle was, you know, not in great condition, uh, which at that point was really secondary compared to everything else. Uh, and the next thing I know, Jimmy had, you know, pulled up to the scene in a, in a rental car. He took a rental car from the pit lane and drove over there. And uh, you know that stark contrast, you know, his ability to understand the moment and understand that uh, the severity of what was going on uh, and overcome, uh, I think, the fear that every driver has, which is seeing another driver hurt and care more about the person than his own, uh, his own reflections of mortality. I think that really meant something to me. I guess that was a long story, but. Have you talked to him about it since? 
Uh, not really. I mean, I, I've saw them, and we talked about, you know, the, you would say the CSI stuff, you know, the crash and what happened, and you know, the marks and you know things like that, but not the actual, uh, not his actual presence. How about that? Uh, so you said racing in a car is similar to that of being a quarterback. Mm -hmm. uh, for an NFL team, yep. and uh, while he isn't a, a quarterback, you received a call from a guy you have a lot of respect for, uh, the NFL's Ray Lewis. Uh, it was the morning of your final race that you know won you the championship in 2012. What did he say to you? Well, Ray's a very passionate guy, and uh, that passion. I respect immensely because it's from that passion uh, that you achieve greatness. Without passion, I don't think you can achieve greatness, but his level of passion is beyond greatness. It's at another level. And I respect him because not only of that passion, but because of his desire to share that with those that are around him and use it in a way of uh, leadership. I just respect that tremendously. You feel the vibe of when he's in the room and what he stands for, his core beliefs. It's contagious. I want to be that guy for my team. I want to be that guy for our sport. And so I think, you know, it's, it's wise to study the ways of someone else who's obviously achieved that. But Ray uh, himself, you know, what he said, <clears throat> you know, he just talked about the moment, what it means, and uh, how I should really soak it in and enjoy it. And uh, from there, you know, how he inspires himself. He just shared those things with me, which I thought was phenomenal. Uh, was there anything in particular he said that really yeah. stands out? Yeah, there was. There was this part of me where he talked about what it's like for him to be a linebacker. How he feels like an animal in the wild, you know, like a, like a lion or a cheetah who just uh, silently stalks his prey, you know, knows nothing else, focused. You know, you don't see a lion or a cheetah out in the woods checking its cell phone, <laughs> you know, yeah. because it's that basic animal instinct of pure focus and desire you know, for that lion. He's focused and desires to eat that day. When you're in the car or when you're an NFL linebacker, your desire, your focus needs to be on eating that day. I thought that was really powerful. So uh, you won the championship. What's the deal with the tank? <laughs> the tank. Well, I like to do things differently. And I clearly. Think, <laughs> yeah, clearly. I think a tank would just be something really, really cool and different that nobody else has ever done. It'd be a little badass. It would definitely be badass. Um, I don't think I have a Napoleon complex, so I don't think that's why I would want it. Right. But I definitely have an appreciation for uh, manly things. So where do things stand? You, On the you, tank? You said, yeah, I mean, you, I haven't to give time, it some context, I've been swamped. You, you said if you won the championship, yeah. you, were, you told yourself oh, you were yeah. getting a tank. Absolutely. Like, and it's not like it's motivation. A, a fake tank, a, a real oh, yeah. military yeah, yeah. tank. It's motivation, you know. I, I think, by the way, that to be a great athlete, in the professional level, uh, and this is a common theme in everything I do, that you need to spend money. And I mean spend a lot of money. What do you mean? It goes back to hunger. You need to be hungry to be a great hunter in the woods. You know, and, and when you're hungry, when you uh, are right at the edge of your limits financially, it, uh, it drives you in what you do. I think that's why most athletes go broke. And nobody really talks about that. But when you spend a lot of money, uh, it 
it makes you really buckle down when you're performing. <laughs> it gives you that another incentive. And you try to create incentives in everything you do. So uh, not trying to sound too elementary here, but uh, so what, what is it that you want to do with uh, June, Dale Jr. Uh, with the tanks? <laughs> Hell, I just want to run around and have some fun. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't really have a plan. Is he, is he on board with it? Uh, I'm working on it. We're still in the selling stages. The selling, the yeah, selling he stage. wants to see me get one first and see how it works and go from there. Yeah, have you, you picked any out that look good? Oh, I found a bunch that I like, but I haven't been able to follow up on them. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, Denny Hamlin uh, said, said about you, and I'm sure you've seen the quote because a bunch of articles picked it up, uh, he, he's a great guy to race with. Really, to me, there's no resemblance from the Brad before to the Brad now. How true? Mm. Well, keep in mind that you know he's speaking from his point of view, and there's you know 43 other guys out there. Uh, and the way that I've raced him before, there's not quite the resemblance, no. But that doesn't mean that's the way I was with everyone else. Um, Rick Hendrick, uh, another one, uh, said about you, quote, Brad, he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. He was very aggressive, but he learned how to control that and how to race, and he did it in a hurry. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I bring that up because I was talking to your sister Dawn, and she said, look, he hasn't changed at all. <laughs> it's kind of one of the th things that as somebody, you know, attains a certain degree, of success, people grow to appreciate and respect them for how Absolutely. they are. Um, so do you think it's more that, or do you think you really have changed in a way that's made people grow to be more accepting? I don't think I've changed that much, but you have to understand that in racing, who you are is defined by who you're surrounded by. The people that I'm surrounded by have definitely changed over the last two or three years. Uh, and so, you know, that perception of who I am is directly attached to the team and the effort that we put out. In what ways, aside from just the changes in actual staffing, what, what's changed about them? Um, well, I mean, they've matured as well. I mean, the actual change in staffing are rather significant. Uh, and, and now that I'm surrounded by you know, uh, a lot of talent. It uh, puts me in a position where uh, my moves seem more calculated, even though sometimes they're not. Hmm. Um, that doesn't make a lot of sense to you, does it? No, it. Uh, so it's not. It's not. It's more people judge the, off the effort, more their skill not as the, opposed to like, like I thought initially you were getting to like character. Or no, something. no, I, I, my character hasn't changed at all. I don't think. No, I, I don't think so at all. I think my sister's right. I'm, I'm the same. I'm the same guy. You know, with the exception yeah. of being able to have the, you know, finances to have a foundation and so forth. Right, and I was speaking to more <clears> of the people around you. I thought, thought that's what. No, you No, I don't think I've changed much there. I'm a little bit looser than what I was. I'm a little bit more self-confident than what I was three or four years ago, but nothing drastic in nature. You were quoted in uh, 2010 saying there's a bit of a boys-only club. Oh, absolutely. At the time, and you were kind of on the outside. <laughs> there's no doubt about that. Explain what that was. Well, you have to understand that the youth movement took place, you know, at the at the turn of the century, and uh, you know the doors really closed in about 2006, 2007. I forced the door back open and snuck through. You know, I, I think of it, you know, in this romantic sense as though I was Indiana Jones, you know, and the door closed and I just barely grabbed my hat out from behind it, <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, to do that, I had to be very aggressive. And, uh, you know, that, that did rub some people the wrong way. There's no doubt about that. But if I didn't, I would have been stuck on the other side of that door. Now, to your point, the last guy through the door is like the new kid. Imagine if 
and, and I know we all have the same experience. Imagine if you were a freshman in high school and at the end of the freshman year, there was not another freshman class. So you went through the rest of your schoolhood career, you know, as the freshman. No matter what you do, you're always the freshman. Mm -hmm. Because the door has closed behind you. That's where I'm at. And until that door opens back up, I'll always be the freshman, I'll always be the guy that, you know, is the easiest one to pick on. Uh, your, your dad mentioned uh, some hazing. <laughs> what, what sort of hazing was going on? Oh, just, you know, everybody's trying at every level they can to rattle me. Well, uh, like, what would they do? Well, I mean, there's countless things, whether it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, events that we have to do together or, uh, you know, how, I, trying to leave you out of everything that goes on, you know, things of that nature. It's hard to pick one thing. How did, I mean, how much did that bother you at the time? Well, I wouldn't say I enjoy it, but I've grown to the point now where I view it as a challenge. Mm -hmm. And since I've, you know, picked up that approach, it's a bit funny because um, every time that someone attempts to uh, put me in a position, uh, I'm stronger from it. You said uh, in this sport, when others are angry at you, generally you've done something right. Yep. How do you feel about that now? And it's a general concept, but I still think that's right. You know, when others, people, a lot of people are angry at Jimmy Johnson for winning as much as he does. He's done something right. Uh, you've also said almost every success that you've had has come from doing the opposite yeah, of what yes. you were told. Yep. Really? Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, from doing the opposite of what somebody told me I could do. From the opposite of what somebody told you you could do? Mm-hmm. Is that, I mean, if young drivers watching this, is that the... <laughs> well, I'm not every other person out there. Uh, and everybody has to carve their own path. In fact, it's dangerous to not carve your own path. Uh, but every time I turned in directions that people told me to turn, I just ran into brick walls. I started realizing that I should just trust my gut. And that at least when I make a mistake, I have no one to blame but myself. The most satisfying moment of your career to date would be what? Wow. How do you pick one moment? I don't feel like I'm defined by one moment. Uh, I feel like I'm defined uh, by the ability to get better, you know, every day. And to me, that's what I take satisfaction. I take satisfaction of when I do something over, doing it better. And there's not one particular thing that I've done over uh, and done better that sticks out as being significantly stronger than anything else. Uh, certainly winning a championship is a huge moment. It's huge. But you know what? Uh, there's races that nobody's even saw or cared about from my perspective. That meant a lot to me too. You know, races where I went to, uh, uh, let's say Charlotte, for example, and, and we, uh, we qualified on our first pole uh, at, at the, uh, with the two team. This was 2011. That to me was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life, you know, because that was a track where I'd struggled at. I just struggled mm -hmm. at, struggled at, and just thought about it and brought a new approach and conquered a track or, or conquered it, at least at that moment, uh, where I had been very weak previously. And that to me is, you know, the ultimate success. And that's just one example. So the, the foundation, the uh, Checkered Flag Foundation, how'd the idea come about? Well, the, the foundation was uh, an idea that came about in, in a lot of different ways. And it just felt right. Um, it started off, you know, really uh, at its root level, grassroots level, uh, with the involvement I had, uh, you know, with the Navy. Uh, and I was doing a, a sponsorship program with them 
through General Motorsports, which was the team I was driving for when I first really broke through in NASCAR. And, uh, you know, I got to do a lot of great things with them, uh, with all the, the military members. And one of the trips uh, was a trip to a hospital, uh, Balboa, out uh, on the West Coast Naval Hospital. And I saw a lot of people that, uh, you know, came back not in the greatest of shape. And that certainly gives you a lot of perspective. You know, I look at my generation, and you can't help but think uh, that uh, at this point in time that we're carrying the, the burden of the, uh, uh, the role to keep this, you know, society free. And, uh, you know, if I hadn't made it as a race car driver, that's probably what I would have been a part of. So, uh, as that all played out, uh, there were other things that just came together that, that made it obvious that I, this was an area that meant a lot to me and that I should uh, make an effort to, uh, to extend uh, the favors that I've received in lives to others. You knew somebody that entered the military and then got uh, injured when his Humvee uh, was blowing up. Tell, tell about mm -hmm. what happened and how that impacted you. Well, it was a friend. Um, and I won't put names out there because he wouldn't really like that, which I respect. Uh, but it was a friend who uh, went back to uh, Afghanistan. He was on a second tour. Uh, and, uh, you know, essentially made it only a week or two uh, before the vehicle he was in ran over an IED and, you know, exploded. And he was injured uh, pretty severely. And a couple other members that were with him didn't make it. Uh, and that... Uh, that's tough to see. It's tough to see a friend go through something like that. And this is a guy that, uh, you know, less than a month before, you know, I'd spent New Year's with. Uh, and now next thing you know, he's in a hospital and can't walk. And uh, more importantly than that, didn't really have the will to live. Uh, and that's a tough thing to see. What, what is that like when you, I mean, I think you ran into him just by happen chance and uh, in a ha hospital, what was that like to actually witness? I was just speechless. That's really all you can say when you see somebody like that uh, that you, you know, weren't anticipating. Uh, you know, you just you're just speechless. You know, what what do you say to someone who uh, who goes through an event like that? And what do you say? Nothing really matters to him. Uh, you, you know, you can tell him it's all going to be all right, but. That doesn't really mean anything to someone like him. He hears that a thousand times a day. I feel like, uh, you know, I'm an uh, action speak louder than words kind of guy. So, you know, the foundation was really the only thing I knew to, uh, to help someone like him out. And, and how important is that for you to be actively involved as opposed to Passive. simply donating money? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand foundations or charities where you know, the, uh, the people who run it aren't involved. It doesn't make any sense uh, because charity is in action and, uh, you know, money and so forth. Well, it takes it so far. Yeah, I mean, you yeah, know, I mean eventually it, somebody has to do something. Somebody has to actually care for anything to work. Uh, and certainly, yeah, you can hire people to do those things, but what's the point? It's, you enjoy participating. I, I do enjoy participating. I feel like it's part of the... Uh, uh, ying to my yang, you know, and, and everything else I do, I take, and I take, and I take, and I take. I take positions on the track, I take room, I take a spot in the field, you know, I'm taking in every other area of my life. It's important that you give somewhere to offset that. Long-term goals for the foundation would be what? You know, I think it's uh, a bit silly to try to put a goal out there in the sense of uh, long-term, short-term. If I could look back and be able to say that I made a difference in some people's lives and that you know their involvement with my foundation uh, helped them become a better person or helped them realize the person they could always be and that they either lost or, or just never were. If I could look back and have that effect on one person, I'd be happy. Um, you know, if I could prevent one person from committing suicide, if I could, 
you know, help one person, you know, their marriage not fall apart because they're struggling together. If I could have just that one influence. Now, what's so tough is that uh, you don't know if you've ever been successful because you only know based on failure, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's tough. But, but you guys will get positive messages. Oh, yeah, we do get positive messages, yeah. Absolutely, we get a lot of them. Uh, but you never know, really, if you're successful because you're just trying to prevent failure. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? Really a pleasure, Brett. No problem, man. My, my pleasure, man. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash GrahamBensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.